This is American Real, where we aim to inspire, empower, and enlighten you through the stories of our guests. Here's your host, Roger Brooks. Rebecca, what's your thoughts on our dependency um, with China in general for our medicine and many, many other supplies that, you know, that, that go through China that we're so dependent on? When we think about ourselves as being dependent, it feels vulnerable and uncomfortable. In this particular case, when you look at nations, there's a codependency. We must remember that China is dependent on the United States just as much as the United States is dependent on China. So we have to understand we live in a global economy and it's messy. It's messy. Let me guess, you're an entrepreneur looking for ways to grow your business online. And you've probably tried everything to grow your business, including social media, SEO, even paid ads, only to find out that nothing truly works. So what if I told you that writing a book that goes on to become a bestseller is the magic wand, and that you can do it in as little as 30 days, two weeks, or even over a weekend in some cases, without spending more than 10 minutes a day. Would you be interested? My name is Roger Brooks, and I'm the founder and host of American Real TV, where I interview world-class guests to empower others through the essence of story. But I didn't get here overnight, and my mission certainly doesn't end here. Ever since I was a little boy, it's been my dream to empower others through the craft of writing and storytelling. And throughout my life, I came across several mentors who pushed me toward my passion for writing books and helping others to do the same. There is no greater joy than to be working with aspiring authors and to help them establish true credibility within their industry by writing and publishing their first book, which I'm proud to say have all gone on to become bestsellers. Now, you're seeing this video because I just opened enrollment for my new book writing program, where I promise to take you from page one to published in 90 days or less. I will be personally working with you to overcome the same fears and obstacles that kept me from pursuing my dreams all of those years. Simply click on the link below to see how I could help you become a first-time best-selling author. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. This is American Real. I am Roger Brooks. My guest today is Rebecca Costa. You are an American sociobiologist, futurist, and author. Rebecca, it's great to have you here with us today. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, we had the opportunity to talk offline a couple of days ago, and I was just, I was really amazed by that discussion. It, um, you, you helped frame some things for me in a way that no one has ever done. And I'm not just saying that, I'm, I'm being 100% honest. So I was really excited to sit down with you today so you could share some of those same things with, with the, my audience, our audience, and um, 
you know, I would just love to, if you could start by providing that example that you gave me of the lily pads because it was so profound and it just hit home uh, so well. So Rebecca, can you talk about why we fall behind as a society on certain problems? And I know you call this exponenti exponentiation, which is a tongue twister for me. Well, it is. I'm, I'm, you know, anytime you use a word like exponentiation, people start moving away from you at cocktail parties, right? I mean, yeah, that that's that's not. I mean, forget the social distancing. Um, you know, scientists have been dealing with social distancing for a long time at social events. Um, when we have a problem uh, like the coronavirus, we have a tendency to think we have more time to fix the problem than we do. And the reason for that is biological. Uh, over millions of years, our brains have naturally uh, come to think of problems in a linear way. And so we wanna solve them incrementally and in a linear way. But that doesn't really work when a problem is exponentiating. And the example I like to use is a pond with lily pads in it. So let's say there's one lily pad in a pond and every day, the number of lily pads is going to double. So on day one, it's one, day two, it's two, day three, it's four, day four, it's eight. And it goes like that. And let's say, for example, that on day 36, the pond is going to be completely covered with lily pads. And at that point, it's going to be an ecological disaster. The pond will be starving, oxygen, fish will die, and, and it, it can't be saved. So when I tell people that, event that disaster is going to occur on day 36 and I ask them on what day is the pond only half full yeah. well our linear brains naturally take 36 and say half of 36 is day 18 so on day 18 it doesn't look like a big deal it's the the pond is half full of lily pads um, but that's actually incorrect if it's doubling every day on day 35 the pond is half full. And then 24 hours later on day 36, you're in meltdown. So the problem is we think that on day 18, when you're a linear thinker, you think that on day 18, you have 18 days to solve the problem. The fact is you have less than 24 hours to solve the problem because it's doubling every day. So when I say, no, it's half full on day 35, there's peace in the kingdom, it all looks like it's fine, you got plenty of time, and then the next morning you wake up and you're in meltdown. And the problem that we have is that our brains are designed to solve problems in a linear fashion. So you see how we've approached the coronavirus. We say, all right, we'll ask people uh, not to congregate in groups of 50, and then 20, and then 10. And what we're doing is chasing an exponentiating problem. So it's very important for leadership of corporations, nonprofits, of entire nations to be able to take emergencies and immediately separate them into those that are moving at a linear pace and can be managed by incremental mitigation and those that are exponentiating and you have to overcorrect. You have to get out in front because if you don't get out in front, 24 hours is not enough time. In the case of the coronavirus, if we were using my lily pond example and we were going to have a million deaths on day 36, 
144 hours earlier, we would only have 16,000 deaths. So we go from 16,000 to 1 million deaths in 144 hours. That is a time-sensitive, high-failure-rate emergency, and you have to get out ahead of those kinds of problems. And the failure to make that distinction it, it just amplifies the crises. No, and I love that example. I'm just curious, why do you think the leaders aren't giving an example like this? Because that, that example is something I could relate to, and I'm sure everyone listening can relate to that as well. Um, but we're not hearing it that way. At least I don't think so. Because I think that naturally we want to solve problems in an incremental way. We want to be as least disruptive as possible. But when a problem is exponentiating, such as a pandemic, or such as climate change, or such as a nuclear disaster like Fukushima, you cannot treat those emergencies that are exponentiating in the same way. And that distinction is not really clear in leadership, particularly in government, where what you have is you fundamentally have a majority of leaders have law degrees, right? And there's nothing that exponentiates in the legal system, right? So they're not used to thinking in that way. They're thinking about smaller mitigations along the way, and that's not really the way to manage exponentiation. Now, the scientists understand that and the mathematicians understand it, but I would like it, you know, to your point, I would like it if leaders would come out and say, this is why we have to overcorrect, because there won't be any time to correct. So if you were advising the, you know, the president of the United States right now, what would you advise him to do or how, how to explain? Would you have him do anything different than from what he's doing today? Yes, uh, there is something that I believe the president is not doing that is really critical at this particular moment in time. And that is, there is a difference between informing and educating. They are not the same thing. Uh, I don't believe that the leader, kind of leadership we need right now is reporting to the American people, the statistics and the actions that are being taken and the uh, commercial and uh, you know, private sector cooperation. That's just a reporting function. I don't believe that reporting is leadership. I think true leadership would be to educate people, to explain why your actions are important right? Not what the action is, but why did you make that decision? And why is it the correct decision? And I think that that kind of education seems to be missing. If we could explain to people how exponentiation works by using a simple lily pad example and say, look, if we don't overcorrect and shut everything down and everyone doesn't stay at home, we could go from 16,000 deaths to a million deaths in 144 hours. Let me show you how that would work. You know, now maybe that's scary, but there are, there are crises in which fear and, uh, you know, and stress are the appropriate response. I'm not sure in this instance, calming everyone down was the best strategy. <laughs> You know, a little bit, you know, your body has been designed to panic and stress and worry for a reason. 
It's for your survival. And so kicking in those survival instincts, th th those are great motivators to stay home. And, and so I'm not so sure calming everyone down didn't prolong the remedy. And what if he said to you, well, look, we, we are, we are doing, we are educating right now, you know, Dr. Fauci and, and others, that's what they're doing. What do you say to that? Well, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks are educating to the best uh, of their ability, but I think that when it comes, they're educating people on the science end of it, but what they're not educating them is on the government's actions, right? So there's a little bit of a separation in these press conferences between here's the scientific data and then the president and vice president say, these are the actions we're taking. That connective tissue seems to be missing. Got it. Well, I, I do appreciate you explaining it that way. It's, I, it's, it's easier for me to grasp and I'm sure for others that are listening. So thank you for going through that. Anything else on exponentiation that you would like to discuss? No, but we, you know, we have to understand that our brains have evolved over millions of years to look at problems a certain way. This is not a political issue. This isn't a, a gender issue. It's just, this is the way the human brain is designed. And, and we, uh, we, we have to understand that we carry with us a lot of uh, primitive instincts like territoriality, you know, people fighting over who gets what, uh, you know, I, there are a lot of things that are just not convenient in the modern world that are carryovers from our prehistoric ancestors. And so we have to understand when we face an emergency like this, one of them that is very key is that we weren't really physiologically designed to respond to long-term problems. So I know that people like uh, uh, Governor Cuomo's taken a lot of heat that he could have bought 10,000 or 15,000 ventilators several years ago. Uh, but for the same reason, we're not reacting to the exponentiation of climate change or the dangers of nuclear proliferation. The further a problem is out, the less inclined we are to take action. And, and so if you, you know, if you want proof of that, talk to a 20 year old about how they should start saving for retirement, right? right? Or buy life insurance. You know, I have kids and their eyes glaze over, you, you know, retirement. I mean, that's gonna happen when I'm 65, I'm 20 now, I, 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 I want cool watches, right? And I want a cool car. So it's very hard to explain, uh, to get somebody to take an action over something that isn't, is going to be a danger, but the timeline is further out. Uh, and, and the reason for that is that from a survival standpoint, uh, you know, fight and flight is very costly to your physiology. Stress is very costly to your physiology. And so if I take a snake and I throw it at your feet, your body is immediately flooded with all kinds of chemicals, right? To either flee or kill the snake. You, you, are, you are an action-oriented organism, instantaneously. We bypass your brain, we flood your body with chemicals, and you take an action. But as you get further and further out in the timeline, no chemicals, no chemicals. And I could talk to you about global burning, and I will tell you that your heartbeat won't go up one beat an hour. No matter how horrible I make the story, there's no physiological reaction because it's not happening to you until your house is actually burning down and you're in it. 
That makes so much sense. And Rebecca, how do we, and how do you in your work, how do you help leaders prepare for things like this, like climate change? Because, you know, it, it is, it's so far out, but it's so important to take action now. Uh, same thing with, with Corona and other viruses that we may be facing in the future. Does an incident like this help to get the right systems in place for other viruses that may be in the future, as well as things like um, climate change? Well, it does to a certain extent. Our, our stress level and our adrenaline is, is pretty high right now, right? We're all, we're all reacting in a fear-based fear mode. Understand that as the numbers start to come down and we normalize, those chemicals leave our body, there's less sense of urgency, and we're going to go back to what is a normal baseline. That's called hedonic adaptation. We're going to actually go back to the baseline of day-to-day -day existence that we felt emotionally before. So this is always the challenge. The immediate danger subsides, and then how do you keep people uh, acting on potential future dangers? And that's part of what I do. I mean, I remember uh, my dad saying one day, I, I don't really understand your area of expertise. And I said, it's okay, dad, you know, very few people do. I am allegedly the global expert on fast adaptation in high failure rate environments. Uh, you want to talk about people moving away from you at cocktail parties and you just have to <laughs> say that's what you specialize in. But think about it, fast adaptation, you wanna be able to move quickly and nimbly in a high failure rate, complex environment. It's complicated and the opportunity to fail is far greater than the opportunity to succeed. That's kind of the definition of complexity. There are more wrong options than there are right ones and the number of wrong ones are exponentiating, right? And so your opportunity to choose right is not very good the more complicated the problem is. Your opportunity to choose wrong is much greater. And the example I like to use there is venture capital. In spite of all of the, the uh, resources they have and all the analytics they do, when an emerging market or an emerging technology is coming into, uh, into play, they can't call it right. They're not going to invest in one 3D printer right, or, or uh, one uh, driverless car, they're going to they're gonna narrow down the field and maybe invest in four, five, ten, as many as their resources will allow, knowing that they're going to only give those companies first round of funding. Then they're going to see which ones are succeeding at hitting their goals, and then a smaller subset will receive a second round of funding, and a still smaller subset will receive third round of funding. And eventually, it's like a funnel. They open the funnel as wide as they can, and then they have basically triage, financial triage, until they get to a winner that they think is the best in the field and is likely to be able to go through an IPO or, or potentially be acquired. So, you know, this is really how you deal with a high failure rate environment. You have to open the funnel to as many solutions as possible and then have very clear triage methodologies. So in healthcare, this would mean in advance of a disaster that you would say, all right, when we're at 50% capacity, everything's normal and these are the protocols. When someone gets admitted to the hospital, we check their insurance, you know, we get a hold of the, their physician, we do all of these. 
When we're at 75%, the protocols get quashed. There's some procedures we're not gonna have time to do. When we're at 100% capacity, this is what we do. And you maybe you color code, code them like we used to with security measures at the airport, right? That they're orange, red, yellow. I never really knew what those were, but I, I kind of thought, well, when the color changes, it's probably not good news. So, so you know, you, maybe you color code these. You can do things in advance to systemically prepare people to be able to change on a dime to change on a dime. So institutionally, you're compensating for the fact that biologically, I don't wanna spur into action on something that's long range, but institutionally, I can plan for those things. Wow. So an example uh, in the coronavirus uh, issue, I haven't really talked about, this will be the first time I talk about this, just-in-time inventory, right? was sort of the buzzword about 10 years ago when all of a sudden stores and hospitals and everything didn't have to wear, you know, have real estate to warehouse stuff because you could order it. And the idea was you sold a can of soup at a Walmart, right, of Campbell's uh, tomato soup. And the following day, that soup would be on your loading dock. So you would get just the amount that you sold. That's what just-in-time inventory is. So all those big warehouses that used to be behind the superstores, they don't exist anymore. Well, healthcare, of course, you know, you don't have, the, you're not tying up capital with, uh, with inventory. You're not, you know, you don't need the real estate space. Financially, just-in-time inventory is fantastic. But what has it done? It had a huge assumption that I could order and get delivery tomorrow. Now, it's okay if I don't get delivery of that can of Campbell's soup tomorrow. You know, it's not the end of the world, but a ventilator, it is the end of the world. And so we've now, it, it's like a bucket of cold water has hit all these, these uh, organizations and every one of them is relying on just-in-time inventory. And that was the, uh, to me, the linchpin that caused all of these problems was that over-dependency on a singular technology right, with no compensatory systemic system for if just-in-time inventory doesn't work. What's our plan? Makes sense. Wow. No, I never thought of that in, in that way. So looking back and, and, and then looking forward, what do we do to correct this problem going forward? Is it, is it already in progress that we're just creating, you know, and, and producing so many ventilators that will We'll have them in place in a stockpile for, God forbid, the next time? I, I don't think we know at this particular moment in time because we're dealing with the immediate emergency. We're dealing with the snake that I threw at your feet, right? So our brains haven't really married just-in-time inventory to this emergency. We don't understand that just-in-time inventory conspired with the coronavirus to create the disaster, right? And so when you have an over-reliance on any particular technology, you must have some kind of compensatory systems in place. And I believe that that has been the failure, right? There was a, a huge financial attraction to go straight to just-in-time inventory. We got lazy and we got used to it. And then the crisis now has you know, pulled the covers back and said, hey, uh, should we be treating ventilators the way we treat cans of soup at the supermarket? Probably not. 
So I think there will be a sea change in how healthcare looks at equipment, PPE, things like that, and that they will, for a period of time, uh, be willing to tie up uh, cash, money, right, in inventory. Rebecca, what's your thoughts on our dependency um, with China in general for our medicine and many, many other supplies that, you know, that, that go through China that we're so dependent on? Well, when we think about ourselves as being dependent, it feels vulnerable and uncomfortable. Uh, anytime you're dependent on anyone, you know, uh, if you're dependent on your spouse uh, for, to care for you uh, because you have a disability, if you're dependent on your children because uh, you're retiring and you didn't, don't have enough money to support yourself, you feel vulnerable and it's uncomfortable. But in this particular case, when you look at nations, there's a codependency. We must remember that China is dependent on the United States just as much as the United States is dependent on China. Right. So rather than look at it as well, look at, you know, they, they you know, uh, uh, they've cornered the market on rare minerals and we need those for for uh, making integrated circuits and and uh, and for all the, for cell phones, to, for printers, for computers. We need rare minerals and they're tying them all up. Uh, what are we going to do? We feel threatened, scared, vulnerable, uh, but they need medicines. That, that have been invented and are you know, under patents and produced only in the United States, as we're finding with you know, some of the malaria treatments for coronavirus. So we have to understand we live in a global economy and it's messy. It's messy. And so when people ask me about, well, we're gonna put tariffs on China, and China goes, you know, it, it's really who's gonna huff and puff the, and, and you know, uh, uh, be not blink, right? Um, and, and China goes, well, we'll put tariffs on your stuff. And then we say, well, we'll put bigger tariffs on your stuff. And it's sort of economic warfare. Really, the only fair tariff in a free market economy is if all countries decide they're never going to tariff anything. What we need is, just like we, we want to have uh, nuclear disarmament, everybody disarm at the same time. We need no tariffs. Because when you think about what a tariff is, a tariff is your country has fallen behind and now you're propping up that industry artificially. And I'm not sure you want to do that. I think in a global economy, you want competition between nations, between the best and the brightest. And that's how progress should really occur. So I'm, I'm for uh, something similar to nuclear disarmament. I'm for tariff disarmament, where at the United Nations, we propose something so bold and so radical as zero tariffs on exports or imports. All countries eliminate their tariffs. Wow. Now, I know that's not going to be a popular idea, and I'm going to take a lot of heat from a lot of economists, not the least of Peter Navarro. <laughs> but I see where you're going with it, right? That, that kind of levels the playing field and, and allows for competition to kick in naturally. And it removes tariffs as a political weapon. 
right? As we're seeing firsthand right now. Exactly. I mean, what what is the point? They will tariff things that that we need or we need them to buy. We'll tariff. Uh, it just goes on and on and on, and it's it's really not productive time for our leaders to spend, and uh, and it's really tariffs have become a weapon, and and uh, and they're not actually a very effective weapon. If you've noticed, we put you know we're escalating the tariffs on North Korea, you know, and on on Iran and and on Russia, and uh, do they have any effect? Well, even the, the economists will have to agree with me on they're not really. Not really. They don't really do much because we depend on them for things. And then they'll leverage that. And then they'll tariff the things we need to export to their, their country. So they, really, in the long run, tariffs are really an ineffective weapon. Why don't we just, uh, you know, put the weapon in a box and put it on a tall shelf and, and everybody get rid of tariffs? I, I don't understand why we can't have that discussion. Okay, so let's go into another area that you are that you love talking about, and that is uh, predictive models and why predictive models are accurate. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, why they're important and why they are accurate and why we should rely on them? Well, I also take a lot of flack because I come out and I admit to people that I trust machines more than people. But that's not unusual if you're a sociobiologist because you know that people are driven by a lot of primitive emotions that they're unaware of. Um, I give you a funny example. I had a CEO that said, you know, I'm a very logical, you know, uh, per personality and I'm not really driven by these primitive emotions, even though I like your stories. I, I, I'm really not driven by gut feel. I just look at the data. And I thought about it for a moment and I said, well, do you ever do any grocery shopping? And he said, yeah, actually my wife and I, we take turns. And I said, okay, so I'm going to give you a big tip. That'll save you a lot of time. You don't need to actually get a cart and go up and down all the aisles. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, the next time you go to the grocery store, get the cart, go straight to the checkout line and shop for everything you need out of other people's carts because they already bought all the stuff you need, milk, eggs, bread. They, they, it's in their carts. And he said, I'm not going to do that. And I said, why not? They haven't paid for it. It's not theirs. The cart belongs to the store. The contents belong to the store. And he said, no. And I said, what do you suppose would happen? He said, somebody punch me in the face or they call the manager. And I said, what is the manager going to do? You're not stealing. And he, and he said, so I don't understand. And I said, because that card is my territory and the food I put in it is my territory. And I said, and I don't even need you to go to the checkout line. Just get near someone's card and walk over and pick something up and say, oh, how do you like this? And they'll say, what, what are you doing? And if you say to them, that's not your cart and that's not your food, they'll say, look, I don't know what you're, you know, you'll, you'll, a fight will ensue. And that is because as, as territorial animals, we have to defend a perimeter that contains all the food and the water that we need to survive. So you definitely, you carve out a perimeter and you, and you have to defend that perimeter or your troop will, will, will perish. So we still carry these primitive emotions, whether it's territoriality or whether, you know, sometimes in a, in a corporation it might be, well, that's my job. That's not yours. That's territoriality. So 
it reflects in different ways in modern society, but we still have those, those primitive emotions and they were there to help us uh, survive and remember that we are the descendants of those who were more territorial than others. So we have it in super strength. So when I look at machines, and as you know, my last book uh, on the verge is about predictive analytics. We're collecting a lot of data points and machines don't have those primitive emotions. They're not driven by that. They just simply look for patterns. And now that we're generating so much data, more than all of, you know, in the history of humankind, we have billions and billions of data points. And with each data point, our predictions of what those outcomes are going to be become more and more accurate, which in the case of coronavirus, look at how accurate we've been. We show charts, right? And we say, hey, if we, if we hadn't done this, it would have been 2 million deaths, 1 million deaths, 100,000. We'd like to keep it under 100,000, but it's dependent on these variables. We, we didn't used to be able to give a, a city two days or three days warning that a hurricane was coming in and what the strength of that hurricane would be. These predictive models are really being used to assess danger and, and then being able to inform the decisions and the policies that we need to make today. And we can trust those more than we can trust humans because they are not burdened by these emotions. One example I will give you is that judges sitting on the bench today are relying more and more on artificial intelligence algorithms to advise them on arraignment hearings. Wow. Right? And... And you can understand why a judge has to be as neutral as possible. But even a judge doesn't know their own biases. There was a case in California where a young woman was tragically raped and the young boy was a, was a student in the same college. He came before the judge. The judge gave him a sentence of three or four months. And in explaining why the sentence was light, he said, because you're from a good family. So, you know, there was outrage over this, right? But, but judges are human beings and they have compassion and sympathy and prejudices and, and those kinds of things. So to the extent that, that the arraignment software that advises and informs the judge sanitizes all of that, takes all of that out and basically looks at your income, your job stability, previous police reports, and, and then says, this is what the range that would be recommended. And more and more judges are relying on that. And so we can see that artificial intelligence sort of compensates for whatever weaknesses we may have as human beings and inconsistencies. And we would call that facts, right? They're looking at the, the, the data's factual in nature. Exactly. Now, there is a caveat to that. And that is we have to be careful about the data that goes into those algorithms. They're basically algorithms and we have to be careful because if uh, a disproportionate number of African-Americans, black Americans are imprisoned and we were to feed that data in, then that bias would be in that algorithm. And it would say, well, is this person right of African-American heritage? If it is, I'm going to give them a, a slightly negative score. Right. So you have to understand that we, we have to be careful about the data that goes into the al into the algorithms so that it doesn't continue to bias in a negative way. Got it. Makes sense. Makes total and sense. And data scientists are very aware of that. So how does how does that 
predictive modeling fit into our current situation of COVID-19? First of all, just a broad question. Based on your background and your, and your science background, do you believe COVID-19 is what they say it is? Is it real? Is it exactly the way it's being presented to the public? I think unless, you know, you're an expert at infectious diseases, uh, it would be difficult to describe what COVID-19 is, right? Because you, you need to have a background in, in that particular field. I think all of these interpretations of whether it's real or not are really dangerous. The, the, the speculating is not coming from experts in infectious diseases or doctors or microbiologists. They're coming from people who are YouTube sensations who are saying African-Americans can't get the virus. And, and inform, you know, there's so much, um, there's so much misinformation that's floating out there. And it's very, very worrisome. Uh, is it a virus? Yes. It is a virus. Is it real? Yes. Do we know where it originated? Not exactly. It has about a 95% match with a similar type of virus in certain bats and in certain other animals. So it's in the 90, 95%. So we, we kind of think that's a, that's a pretty high number in science. So we kind of think that that might, might be the origins of it. Is it a bioweapon? Um, somebody could have been tinkering around with this virus from a bat or another animal and it could have gotten into human beings, but it's not really that likely. I would say that that's, that's, a, that's a low probability. It's more likely that, that these uh, wet markets, which are just, you know, I mean, it, it was a matter of time. Truthfully, if you've ever been to a wet market in China, uh, you know, it's a matter of time that something infectious and very dangerous was going to come out of these wet markets. Um, and, I, and I believe that they're very problematic. I believe China will pay a price for this because I think they, they did not, uh, I don't think that they weren't aware of it. I think that they did not let the World Health Organization know the real data. And so the World Health Organization was working off of a false set of data and didn't react fast enough. And going back to my earlier point, when we first started talking, it was an exponentiating problem yeah. and they were treating it with linear solutions. So uh, I, it is a virus. Uh, it is very durable, very strong. It has uh, mutated into at least eight lineages, which is gonna make vaccines a little bit tricky. Because, uh, as you know, when we do a flu vaccine, we're kind of, uh, it's Russian roulette. We're, we're gambling on what we think this, the most popular flu is going to be, and we don't always call it right. And even so, the flu vaccines are only effective about 20 or 30% of the time. So I don't want people to get a false sense that once we get a vaccine, nobody will ever get coronavirus again, and that we won't have uh, experiences like this again. Um, it's, it, it's a robust, uh, it's, it's a robust and very dangerous virus. And, uh, the, the only way that we have to contain it as of this particular moment, but there's a lot of therapeutics that are being looked at, uh, right now. And I'm very hopeful about that. But at this particular moment, the, we know it's transmitted human to human. 
So, you know, we, we if you just stay away from other people, you know, you, you pretty much are gonna, not going to get the virus. Thank you for explaining that. Appreciate your insight. What about these wet markets? What's going to happen now uh, going forward? Will there be any, um, uh, you know, mission to put these wet markets out of business? And I heard something the other day, and I didn't know this, that there are wet markets right in America and uh, a couple of dozen, from what I understand, right in New York City. Yeah, and uh, San Francisco. Uh, San Francisco has a wet market also. Um, there are some here. Uh, they're not just in China. They're all throughout the Middle East. Um, the, it's a cultural issue. You know, trying to eliminate wet markets is, is uh, similar to trying to change people's religion. I mean, it's a cultural and institutional thing. And I, I don't think that, I really just don't think that that's going to happen anytime soon. So what is the solution, if anything? And that kind of leads me into our next topic, because I know you love to talk about there are solutions for, for many of the problems out there. Right. Um, we know what these viruses are. We know how people get them. And the, and, and the key is to get on top of them immediately. Right. So we do have that ability. We can trace the origin. Remember, uh, way back when tracing started with, I think, venereal disease. Somebody would get syphilis or herpes or something like that. And, and as embarrassing as it was, you know, they had to confess who they had slept with and then, you know, go in and, and the physician or the individual would contact those people and they'd go in for tests. You probably, you know, if you're my age, you kind of remember that that was sort of the beginning of tracing. But we need to trace in a quicker way and in a more accurate way. But in order to do that, you got to have a test and you got to have a fast test. And of course, now with Abbott Labs coming out with this five minute to 15 minute test, uh, we do have a way to test people. So, uh, you know, but but the key here and what makes it kind of tricky is that uh, you may not have any symptoms, so why are we going to test you? And even if we test you today, you might get it tomorrow, right? So we, it's it's a little bit it's a little bit tricky to contain people. But if we know for sure you have it, we need to test everybody that you potentially came in contact with, uh, as a very minimum. And we need to be prepared to move very quickly to geographically isolate. And I mean martial law. Let's be clear about this. I mean, bring the military in and shut down a geographic area for a period of time until we can expunge it of the virus, right? So uh, those kinds of lockdowns are, sound very radical, but uh, we should get used to them because we're, we're making more people. And more and more people means more and more wet markets and disease and all kinds of problems. And so uh, the likelihood of these kinds of viruses getting out are pretty good. And they will, and they will get more, we will see more of it. Do you think society is now ready or prepared to take more extreme action quickly? Because I know you talked about that early on where you, you have to lock down immediately. Are we ready for that martial law uh, to happen next time so, so it doesn't spread like it is today? I, I, real, I, I really couldn't tell you. I don't know. I do know that whatever uh, systemic measures we put in place now, right, 
will be the most severe. And as time goes down and we adapt to the new normal, uh, the measures will be less and less severe and there'll be smaller mitigations and milder mitigations that won't work when a problem's exponentiating. So I'd like to see, you know, the political leaders work on measures that you take and, you know, when we have a crisis like this now, you know, like, okay, what was the World Health Organization doing? and how much responsibility does China bear and how are we going to do this kind of tracing? And, you know, it, it would be good to see how, I mean, the United Nations outside of like letting people, I, I guess, discuss their reasons for invading each other's territory or, or you know, doing other uh, uh, more military actions, this would be a wonderful project for the United Nations to take on, I, I think. You know, it would kind of bring everybody together because it's a common enemy of all nations. And so you'd like to see someone like the United Nations and the World Health Organization. I think Bill Gates should run the World Health Organization. He, he kind of is running his own independent World Health Organization, and nobody's been more effective um, in terms of the smallpox uh, vaccinations and eradicating smallpox than the Bill Gates Foundation. So he would be a great person to run that. And he's data-centric, and I like that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Rebecca, you have been a tremendous wealth of information today. I can't thank you enough. If people want to reach out to you, if they're interested in your books, learning more about you, what is the best way that they can find you or reach, reach you? Very easily. They can re reach me on Facebook and, and Twitter at Rebecca Costa, but uh, I have a website that's chocked full of videos and, and interviews and things like that and papers that, that I've published. Uh, and it's RebeccaCosta.com. That's R-E-B-E-C-C-A-C-O-S-T-A.com. Fantastic. I have a feeling this is going to be the first of many discussions with you. I so appreciate your time today. And thank you for educating us and providing us with more knowledge and information so we could think a little bit more clearly. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the great program and great work you're doing. It's really important at this time. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning into American Real. Be sure to visit our website, AmericanReal.tv, or search for us on iTunes or YouTube for past episodes. While you're there, please rate us or leave us a review as that helps others find our show. I am truly grateful and appreciate all of your support. If you'd like to be part of our inner circle or want one-on-one -on -one coaching, check out the American Real Learning Academy where we have self-help groups and courses so you can build the best you. We also have a new Facebook group where you can connect with high achievers from around the world. If you want to go even further, maybe you're determined to write your own book or launch your own podcast, contact me today to see if we could help. You could reach me through Instagram or Facebook or email me directly at roger at americanreal.tv. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you 